I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. This, this is probably the most anticipated section of the Book of Mormon um, so far, just because it's kind of the culmination of all the prophecies and all of the stuff that's been going on beforehand uh, leading up to the appearance of Christ in the Americas. And it, it's really cool, I think, because it kind of talks about some of the things that um, the people were experiencing right before what the prophet Nephi was experiencing right before. Um, you can, my, my first thought goes to the people that were, that were like repenting and getting baptized like a year before Christ shows up, you know, that they, they had the testimony, they had the faith to, to join this gospel that was kind of struggling in some ways to, to keep a firm hold on the people when all the Getty Anton Robert stuff was going on. Um, but they, they were able to see truth and identify it and join with it, um, right before Christ shows up. And that's, I don't know. I just think of them as like, lucky. really, <laughs> well, yeah, kind of lucky. I mean, they, they had the faith necessary to do it and it could have been 20 years before, but they, they were able to benefit from not only joining the church, but also, you know, getting this huge testimony boost um, right after joining. It's just kind of cool. But in, in chapter 7, it really describes a lot about how um, they they were divided into tribes. Every tribe did appoint a chief or leader over them, and thus they became tribes and leaders of tribes. So everyone's kind of been separated into their families. And then as we move into chapter eight, um, we see a lot of the, the really upheaval of everyday life happening. And I think I said it before, I, I think that these tempests, earthquakes, fires, whirlwind, whirlwinds, physical upheavals, uh, they happen during the crucifixion of Christ. But I think the, the purpose behind it is to humble people and to, not only notify them that something big was happening, but also keep them humble about that they need to rely on the Lord and that they need to rely on Heavenly Father. And then following that, 
you know, Christ appears to them and, and brings a message of peace. But I think a lot of times when we, we see bad things happening, we think that it's all punishment. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just a, a slap in the face to remind you to be better. All of these destructions happen, and it goes into great detail about, you know, the city of Sarahamla, the city of Moroni, the city of Moronaiha. And these are very important cities for them. You know, Sarahamla has been kind of there almost throughout the whole book. I, I look at it almost like the equivalent of Jerusalem, you know, like the, the Jerusalem of, of, our, of this continent. You know, and then, you know, it, it, verse eight goes through all these assertions. And then verse nine, I thought it was interesting because there's this darkness. But then they hear the voice of the Savior in verse two. It says, well, woe unto these people, woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent. For the devil laugheth and his angels rejoice because of the slain of his fair the slain of the fair sons and daughters of my people. And it is because of their iniquity and abominations that they are fallen. And then he kind of tells us, you know, um, in one aspect, what I found interesting is how in chapter two, it says that the, the Satan rejoices because they have fallen and died. But then in verse three, it says, that I, meaning the Savior, burned with fire the city of Sarahamla and the great city of Moroni, I caused to be sunk to this. So all these destructions, the Savior caused them to happen. And, and it's funny because the Satan and his angels view that as a success, you know, uh, like as a happy thing. And I think that the Lord is... I think he's very merciful that he allows, I don't know how to say this, but he allows our reset to occur. Now we're going to reset, going to start again. We're going to clean up, you know, the population. And we're going to give an opportunity for the gospel to thrive, you know. And that's kind of why these restorations happen, you know, and, and these apostasies. It's the apostasies come about because of our decisions. And the calamities come about because of Christ wanting to humble us and give us another opportunity for, for his children and our brothers and sisters to start again, you know. And, and I feel like sometimes we, we struggle with the fact that how can the Lord uh, cause these destructions? How can, you know, turn Sodom and Gomorrah into, to, uh, uh, you know, destroy those cities? Well, there's people there. Why wouldn't you, you know? But, but I think I, the way I view it is I, I see a great mercy in the fact that there comes a point where your traditions are, are so affecting your children that they don't have a chance to really use their probationary state correctly, you know? And then we have the spirit world where individuals are given that chance. 
No, it's true. I think there's the concept that mercy cannot rob justice. And there has been iniquity and there has been a lot of wickedness in the in among the people. And so in many ways I think that they they're having to say, look, some of these people are are dying because they have been in they've been part of that wickedness they've been maybe the cause of wickedness and it's a punishment some of these people are dying as collateral damage which is unfortunately a result of also there being iniquity and wickedness sometimes bad things happen to good people but in the end what's the end result is that you have all these people who have suffered all these different calamities that have happened They've withstood, you know, all these storms, all these upheavals, all these crazy things, fires and destructions of cities. And they're hearing this voice saying, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and you need to repent, and here's your chance. I think in verse 15 of chapter 9, it says, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I created the heavens and the earth and all the things that in them are. I was with the Father from the beginning. I am in the Father, and the Father in me. And in me hath the Father glorified his name. I came unto my own, and and my own received me not. And the scriptures concerning my coming are fulfilled. And as many as have received me, to them I have given to become the sons of God. And even so will I to as many as shall believe on my name. For behold, by me redemption cometh, and in me is the law of Moses fulfilled. I am the light and light of the world. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away, for I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. He's basically not only introducing himself and saying, this is who I am. This is who's what what is happening here. But he's also saying things are changing. Huge monumental changes like this don't happen with about without a little bit of tumult, you know, a little bit of tumultuous times. And then at the very end in verse 22, therefore, whoso repenteth and cometh unto me as a little child, him will I receive for of such is the kingdom of God. Behold, for such I have laid down my life and have taken it up again. Therefore, repent and come unto me, ye ends of the earth and be saved. I think it's important to note he's not just talking to those people. He's talking to us. He's talking to everyone. But the point being, every every day is a moment to repent. Every day is that time to recognize the Savior as your Redeemer. You don't have to go through, you know, uh, your city falling into the ocean to be humble enough to be as a little child and follow the Savior. You don't have to go through some crisis for that to happen. Sometimes that's what it takes, but sometimes you can make a choice. You know, I'm going to humble myself. I need help. I need guidance. And he's the one that can give that to me. Well, if you go back to verse 5, towards the end of verse 5, it kind of ends with that the blood of the prophets and the saints might not come, come anymore against, against them. And then verse 7, towards the end, that the blood and the prof- of the prophets and the saints shall not come up any more unto me against them. And verse 8, at the end, that the blood of the prophets and the saints should not come up any more against them. And verse 9, 
that the blood and the prophets and the saints should not come up to me anymore against them. In verse 10, and I send and declare to them concerning the wickedness and their abominations. 11, again, that the blood and the, of the prophets and the saints I sent among them might not cry unto me for the ground against them. You know, it seems like that's a very important thing he wants us to know, you know. <laughs> And who's he talking to? The the people that are left are are the righteous people. And he's he's not comforting the wicked ones that are saying, "Why did this pillar of fire just burn me? Why mm -hmm. did this you know?" He's letting the righteous people know, "This looks you're scared, and all these terrible things happen, but I'm doing this because." You these pe this people have done enough wickedness. There's a point where there's enough wickedness that has occurred, and when I hear the word that the blood of the prophets, me I I at first I thought that they've killed a lot of prophets and there has to be some vengeance. But then I think about Lehi, Alma, uh, especially Alma the younger. The sons of Mosiah, uh, you think about Helaman and Helaman, the older Helaman, the younger, I guess. And all the work they did in continuously giving up the judgment seat, going back out there, going back out there, going to this people, getting kicked out of there, going over there. And it's, and I view it as the blood of them. And, and I'm sure there were some that were killed and some that were some other prophets we don't know about. But so far, the ones that Mormon has include, included, we see examples of them continuously going back to the people. And, say, and the promise that they're always given when they're down is, and, and sometimes when they have to give up on a certain people, is, in time, I will redeem them. In time, I will come. And even after I come, and they fall away again, even then I will preserve part of your seed, and they will eventually come back to the truth. He tells this Nephi all the way back at the beginning, you know, that the Gentiles, and he talks about the discovering of the Americas and how they are going to bring the book of jo Joseph, and in, in, in the, in the, they're going to bring the Bible, and they're going to restore your seed to the knowledge of the truth. So repeatedly, the, they've, the prophets have seen kind of gotten a glimpse of everything that's going to happen to this people. And now this has actually happened, a very monumental thing. And, and I think he's trying to remind them what the prophets have been telling you guys for so many. I'm here to fulfill that, fulfill what I've told you was going to happen, you know, because they, 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 they works. I mean, and, and if you wonder, how can these prophets, because when we were reading Alma, I was just astounded at Alma's patience and, and his perseverance. And even when he was down, he would pray and then he would get back out there, you know. And you think, where does that come from? Where does he learn that, that charity, that love, that continuous effort? He learned it from the Savior. And here now he is here to come say, and, and like you mentioned, that introduction, and when he says, I am the light and the life of the world, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And one thing I I don't remember where, but I 
some guy he mentioned that phrase because it it's mentioned a lot in the doctrine and covenants and he kind of changed it a little bit to say i was there at the beginning and i will be there at the end mm -hmm. and they it it really and i really like thinking about it that way because he's been there at the beginning of this book you know this story with just lehi and, and sariah and, and and them fleeing jerusalem and he's going to be there at the end when the gospel is restored and the these people will be restored to a knowledge of the truth again you know it's yeah. not the first time and because i oftentimes when you when we see calamities and we see that the lord caused these things to happen we can we kind of get this feeling it's almost like how we view the the savior the jehovah of the old testament if you don't read the verses in context and read and taking account everything the Lord and his characteristics, you can get tempted to think the Lord of the Old Testament sounds like a very venge vengeful, <laughs> tough guy, you know, but he's not that. And there's plenty of scriptures in the Old Testament to show that that's not the case as well. But, um, you know, it, it can be scary and, and especially for us who we are living in an era where there are calamities. There's wars, there's natural disaster natural disasters and unnatural disasters as well. Man-made cost ones, you know. And uh, you know, we could take comfort in knowing that he's in control. You know, we we won't be able to control these cities being burned. We can't control other people. We can't really, the Gadianta robbers, they're going to do their thing. But what we can't control is ourselves. Are we righteous? And, we're, and if we're aligned with the Lord, you know, we will be okay. You know? Yeah, I think, I think you start to see that um, at the beginning of chapter 10. It says, and now behold, it came to pass that all the people of the land did hear these sayings and did witness of it. And after these sayings, there was silence in the land for the space of many hours. For so great was the astonishment of the people that they did cease lamenting and howling for the loss of their kindred, which had been slain. Therefore, there was silence in all the land for the space of many hours. And I think, why, why would they be suddenly silent if... They weren't, number one, trying to process what just happened. And number two, they were feeling comforted, you know, in, in some way, knowing, like you said, uh, that he's in charge and he has all of this under control. And so it's kind of like anticipation. Okay, we've gotten this, this message saying this is why this was done and this is who did it. And that we need to repent. And I think it was a lot of reflection maybe some assessment of what's what's actually happened, you know? What where where are we now? Where do we stand? Where do we go from here? And instead of just lamenting, which doesn't really solve anything and it doesn't help you get over or past or or onto the next level, um they were able to kind of say, "Okay, let's take some time and assess ourselves internally, maybe even assess ourselves physically, externally, and uh, that's when this the voice comes again. 
and the Lord compares himself to a hen gathering her chickens, right? In verse 4, O ye people of these great cities which have fallen, who are descendants of Jacob, yea, who are of the house of Israel, how oft have I gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and have nourished you? And again, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? Yea, O ye people of the house of Israel who have fallen. Yea, O ye people of the house of Israel, ye that dwell at Jerusalem, as ye that have fallen. Yea, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens, and ye would not. I I think it's it's very powerful that the Lord is talking to these people. But at the exact same time, he's talking to us. Yeah. Like these words, his appearance there is happening to us. You know, it's like the everything, like he's, <laughs> like he knows what he's doing. We're in the, and he's guiding Mormon and these prophets to, I need you to write these things. Because not only is he saying this to them, he's saying it to us in that moment. Because he knows that we're going to have these words, you know. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I just think that's really powerful to think about it like that. Because everything we're about to hear is given to them as a personal experience. But given specifically to us through his prophets. and you know, through this Book of Mormon, you know, because that was, that's the whole point of all of this. It wasn't just so this would happen and if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did it really happen? <laughs> well, in this case, yes, because it was written down and we know it and he knew that we would read these in the last days, you know. Well, and then the, did... imagery, the imagery of a hen gathering her chickens, like, it's interesting that he would use that kind of metaphor but i think basically what he's saying is a, a hen doesn't forcefully go out and pick up its young you know you see like a a cat or a lion or whatever goes and like picks up their babies and carries them where they need to put them and puts them down and they'll, they'll sometimes carry them around by the scruff of their neck or whatever kind of forcing them okay you need to stay over here a hen doesn't do that hen kind of opens up the wings and goes and kind of herds the chicks underneath her to protect them from rain or from whatever and shows them where the food is and that's how they learn how to eat and i think he's he's trying to say that i will provide shelter i will provide uh meaning in life i will provide happiness but you have to be willing to come to it I'm not going to go out and force you to come in. And in this situation, you know, he says, and you would not is the end of that of verse five. How many times have I sent out prophets to teach you the gospel? How many times have I sent them out to call you to repentance? How many times have I explained the gospel in the simplest of terms? And how many times have you just said no? Or have you just said, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then... You don't actually do it. You understand that it's there for you, but you just don't take it. And I think, like you were saying, that speaks to us in every age. 
ever, before and after this moment. Uh, human nature is to be a little bit petulant sometimes and to not want to, uh, I don't know, conform or or give in to the fact that we need help sometimes and that we are needy sometimes, spiritually, physically, whatever it may be. And he's basically saying, I have given tons of opportunities for you to recognize that only through me is there salvation. And sometimes you've just chosen no thanks, you know? Well, I think also this is a very powerful metaphor for them and meaningful because they've heard this before. They've heard this from Isaiah. When Nephi quotes Isaiah, he talks about how he delights in the words of Isaiah. And Isaiah talk in Jacob as well. And and they are and they are reading those scriptures from the brass plates. And I would assume that Isaiah being taught to this people has happened through many of their prophets when they expound the scriptures, when they share. And even a few chapters ago, when when the sign was given of his birth, and and people automatically thought, oh, oh, well, not people, but some of them thought this means that the law of Moses is fulfilled. You know, mm-hmm. they they are very um, familiar. Well, the ones that are familiar with the scriptures and the gospel are very familiar with Isaiah and his writings. And and we this imagery of as a hand gathers her chicken in Israel is is not unknown to them. You know, right. can you imagine having heard these stories growing up, heard them from Alma and Helaman and Lehi now? And then the Savior tells you that story again, you know. And and I like if we go back to chapter nine, uh, verse nineteen and twenty, where he says, um, "And you shall offer up unto me no more of the shedding of blood. Your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away. For I will accept none of your sacrifices and burnt offerings." And then he gives us the new sacrifice that he wants us to do. And you shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will, not, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. And and then he says, and I have come unto the world to bring redemption unto the world and save the world from sin. And I think that's, I mean, they, they were also waiting for the fulfillment of the law of Moses, you know, and they, they just have the Lord tell them these sacrifices. Now what I, you know, the, the burnt offerings and, and the shedding of blood. Great. They kind of served their purpose. But now that I'm here, that was what you, those sacrifices were meant to remind you of my sacrifice, you know. And then, and then the new law says, I want you to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Which to me, if, if we look at this linearly, you know, step one is the law of Moses. Step two is the gospel law, the law of Christ. And step three is the law of consecration. 
And what I really like is this pattern is still beneficial for us, meaning that the law of Moses focused on outward gestures. It focused kind of like on how many steps. It was a very strict law. And it tells us, even in the Book of Mormon, it explains to us, it was given to the children of Israel because they were stiff-necked. They needed a law that was very strict. And I think sometimes when we're struggling to live the gospel because we don't feel it, sometimes we could, I think, this is my opinion, I think, well, all of this is my opinion. I, I think sometimes we can do the action with faith, just be obedient, just try it out. And then the feeling comes after, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes sometimes we have to do that. Some, You know, it might be with the law of tithing or the word of wisdom or something that we, we just don't feel like I can either do that or I don't see how that will make me happy because I'm happier doing this thing, the opposite of that law, right? And, and sometimes we have to take the law of Moses approach where just do it and give it time. Be consistent, do it, and then you will feel the Holy Ghost. And then you will do it because you want to do it, because you feel it, because it becomes part of you. I mean, I I have a friend that um, he's actually been a guest on the podcast. Um, He told me, he basically said, look, I've lived the principles of the gospel and I've also not lived the principles of the gospel. And when it comes down to it, I, I am a member of this church and I adhere to the, the gospel as we know it because I'm happier when I do. And I think that that is very powerful because it's like he's tried it. You know, like you said, he said, I'm going to give this a shot. See how I feel. See what happens. What is my life like if I follow this rule or if I you know, go to church every single Sunday without fail. How will my life be different? And if it's not, then maybe it doesn't make a difference. But he's like, I do it because it has made a positive difference in my life. I am happier because of it. And sometimes it takes that that effort first. And then you get that testimony. I've done it. There's a difference. And I'm going to keep doing it. Right? Other times you can you can say, I don't know why, but there's certain things I just have a testimony of without even having to test it out. Like I just I, maybe I've seen it in others or something like that, and I just know that it's that's true. But yeah, I think everyone has a certain threshold where they're like, I gotta maybe give this a try before I know if it's gonna make a difference in me or not. Well, I was gonna say that's what Alma tells us to do. experiment. Even experiment with my words, you know, give it room that it may work within you and you will figure out it's, it's like this little process, like this little experiment guidelines for spirituality. You, you just, even if you have just a desire to believe, let that desire work within you, he says, you know, and then, and then there'll be room for more. And a little bit more, and a little bit more, 
until it it's so strong that now it's not a belief, now it's knowledge. And then he says, and now are you done? Do you cast it off? No, mm-hmm. you continue. You continue to build. And and I think we forget that the process is line upon line, you know. You know, and and um, sometimes we want the entire novel, the entire book, but how? Why would we get the book when we're not even reading the first line and going to the second and going to the third? You know. Well, then you look at as as all this stuff starts to calm down. You know, in chapter ten. In verse 10, it says, And the earth did cleave together again, that it stood, and the mourning and the weeping and the wailing of the people who were spared alive did cease. And their mourning was turned to joy, and their lamentations unto, into the praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. And thus far were the scriptures fulfilled, which had spoken had been spoken by the prophets. I like how, number one, as things are calming down, people are recognizing that not only is that a good thing, but I think they're anticipating the next step. And it's because of what of verse 11. And thus far were the scriptures fulfilled, which had been spoken by the prophets. I think Mormon puts that in there to basically say, everyone knew what the prophecies said. And they knew that there were going to be some crazy, crazy times. Some tumultuous storms and stuff. And when that was coming to an end, they knew that they were on the right track. And they also knew what was coming next, that Christ would come. And so their lamentations, the, the, the sense of loss of their former life uh, was over. And this anticipation of, oh my gosh, this is really happening. Everything so far that they've said was going to happen has happened. You know what that means? The next step holy cow, do you realize what this means? And I think it was this feeling of like, not only have I been deemed worthy of this of this next experience of witnessing the Savior, but also the, the law is going to be fulfilled and we will have the opportunity to, to commune with him. And it, it even says in verse 12, and it was the more righteous part of the people who were saved, and it was they who received the prophets and stoned them not. And it was they who had not shed the blood of the saints who were spared. Um, so these were the people that were worthy, right? They had withstood all of this, all the calamities, and they were they were repentant enough and righteous enough to to be able to witness this next experience. And I, I just think that's really cool that Mormon kind of points out a few times throughout all these chapters that all of the stuff that were in the scriptures have been fulfilled to this point because he's trying to say uh, not only are prophecies real when prophets say things it's not just for fun like this stuff will really happen but also the people are realizing if this has all happened the way they said it was going to happen then the next things will too yeah i I really like uh, verse 14 where he says and whoso readeth, let him understand. He that hath the scriptures, let him search them and see and behold, if all these deaths and destructions by fire and by smoke and by tempest and by whirlwinds and by the openings of the earth to receive them 
And all these things are not unto the fulfilling of the prophecies of many of the holy prophets. And what I get from that is they have been warned. This should not be a surprise. <laughs> the calamities come when you reject the, the Savior and the gospel. It may not come when you first reject it. It may come generations later, but it does come. And so, you know, the, these destructions and things weren't just, okay, now we now we do this. You know, it was, it, it's in the scriptures. They've been warned. And, and I think that counsel comes for us too in our day. That we have been warned that in the last days, these kind of things will happen. We've been warned to repeatedly to search the scriptures so you can be prepared. And it's not so you can be prepared to avoid these things. So you can be prepared that when they happen, you too can be at peace. You too can recognize and say, this is the fulfillment of the words. And just as the the sign of his birth and the sign of his death and these signs of his coming have occurred and they are all almost like little milestones to the saints to say and and just as those signs the ultimate sign of his coming in the atonement and the resurrection are also sure things you know and that all his words would be fulfilled I really like um, verse 18 as well, where he says, and it came to pass that at the end of the 34th year, behold, I will show unto you that the people of Nephi who were spared, and also those who have been called Lamanites who have been spared, did have great favors shown unto them, and great blessings poured out upon their heads, insomuch that soon after the ascension of Christ into heaven, he did truly manifest himself unto them, showing his body unto them and ministering unto them. And an account of his ministry shall be given hereafter. And I really like that because so far in the book, we felt at times you can feel a little bit like team Nephites and team Lamanites. And when it comes down to the here to this moment, it was team righteous. It was yeah. whoever was righteous from either one, and and I'm and I'm very happy to see that there were some here from both. Yep. Some were Nephi, some were Lamanites. It didn't matter at this point. It was who was righteous. And maybe they weren't all the same level of righteousness, or maybe they weren't the same level of activity or something like that. I think it's important to note that. God will judge us according to our circumstances and according to our context. Maybe there were Lamanites that only knew half of the gospel. They didn't know everything that the Nephites knew or vice versa. But they had good intentions and they had a contrite spirit and they were repentant and they wanted to be better. And that's what qualified them for forgiveness and for this opportunity and i think that a lot of times we think oh these were all the good guys and they were all on the same level uh, maybe not maybe there were some people who were like nephi the prophet who from birth basically had been active and involved in the gospel and there were some others that maybe a year ago had just barely started to listen but they had the desire 
and they had the intention to be righteous. And at that moment, they had the opportunity to join the group of everyone else. And I see only three, well, maybe four qualifications that we've read so far from Christ himself. You know, the, the first one is in verse 20 of chapter 9 is that you offer a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And then in verse 22, whoso repenteth and cometh unto me as a little child, him will I receive. And, you know, I think we put a lot more qualifications on either ourselves or others than what the Savior is looking for. <laughs> sure, there are commandments and things, and that's true. But just as the temple questions, most of them say, do you strive to? Right. They don't say, do you perfectly live this law? And have <laughs> you have you been perfect in, in, in every sense of the word? No. Do you strive to? I just feel like the Savior is continuously trying to show us how our disposition to change, to improve, he can work with us. Like if we, if we have a desire to change and improve, it doesn't matter where we are. We could be off the path. He will get us to the, the iron rod. And then it's our desire to just press forward. And I, I often think about that scenario where when you're not hanging, when you're not on the path, hanging on to the iron rod, it's really hard to know what that would feel like. Like, why would that be worth it? It's, it's, it's almost impossible to know unless you do it. And only then when you're holding it, will you feel the peace and the assurance that you're on the path. That's what he asks of you. When you get to the tree, is different for everybody. Right. That's that's different, but all he asks is stay on the path and hold firmly to the iron rod, which is his word, his promises, his commandments. And I and I often feel like you're tempted when you're not hanging on that if you do hang on, you don't know how that's going to feel. You don't know how that's going to solve your problems, how that's going to feel better than when you currently are because at least over here you have your 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 other things that make you happy temporarily and, and you feel like you're okay but what you don't know is you don't know until you're on there until you're reading the scriptures until and, it, and it's not it may not be the first time it may be weeks it may be months of you just going to church reading the scriptures abstaining from what you shouldn't and putting more things in what you should do in your life. And the thought that comes to me, and it's kind of weird the way I think about things, but if you're hanging on to the rod and you you can know you know what not hanging on to the rod is. You can always go back there. It's not like you're missing out. But if you've never hanged on to the rod, you never really will ever know what that's like. And you are missing out. You know, it's like a contrast thing. 
One, you have by default the natural man. You know what that is. You've been down that road. You know where it leads. But to be sanctified and to be um, aligned with the Lord's will, you can't know it until you do it. Yeah. You know? And I, and, and I just, you can't let that pass up. You got to do it. Even if you just say to yourself, hey, I'm going to take this year. This year, I'm going to try to do everything hanging on to. You know why? Because every other year I've done it my way. I've done <laughs> it the other way. I know what that's like. But I've never really actually given, been all in. You know? And I want to know what that feels like. And, and, and I think when we make that honest decision, whatever it may be, and it doesn't have to be a huge life thing. It could be with a small commandment or a small thing. I think when we're honest about really trying, then it will feel very different than when we have just done it for someone made me, my parents made me, or the bishop is watching, or oh, I was told I need to go on a mission, so I better just go so I can come back and get my car or whatever, you know? Yeah. Those will well, never feel, yeah. After, after you do that, for a while after you really test test me now herewith right uh then you can talk about the great favors that have been shown unto you and the great blessings that have been poured out onto your heads right you can't experience that if you don't really give it the full effort and then maybe you can reflect back on how have i how has my life been different how have i changed and then you can use that as a testimony to to tell others because we know that once you've tasted of the fruit, even if you haven't made it to the tree, right, to permanently, if you've tasted of it, you want to share it. That's the first thing you want to do. And when you start to share it with others, look, I, I know I tried doing it my own way, and then I tried to be 100% all in, and this is the difference it's made. I mean, just doing, doing this podcast has forced us to, <laughs> not that we wouldn't study, but it's forced us to read more consistently and more in depth and try and think about things more. And for me personally, it's been a huge benefit because even though I, I probably would have read, I'm not held to a higher, like, I need to think about it and I need to consider what, what's important here. It's been a different kind of studying. And I've seen that my, my mind goes to gospel principles in daily life and in regular everyday things a lot faster than it used to things come to mind about gospel principles so much faster like i'm able to explain well why am i not doing so well in this or why am i struggling with that or someone's telling me about you know their their personal life trials and the first things that come to mind immediately are things that i've read in the last 9 months you know and it's like just just that one little change to emphasize scripture study more has made a huge difference. And some of those great favors that have been shown to me is that I do feel like um, I've received greater connection with the, the Holy Ghost and that I've received greater inspiration as well on what I should do and not do. So, yeah, when you try it, when you really, really try it and take it seriously... 
um, there will be, you'll, you'll experience the same things that they experienced, those favors and those blessings. I think this, this uh, having doing this podcast has taught me one thing, that I have a huge learning disability. <laughs> 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 the, for example, like, <laughs> like um, having to try to summarize in, after I read, having to just think about, okay, what did this mean? Where does this fit in in the story? How does it relate to other things? Just having to put it into words. Just summarizing has done so much more to just like open my thoughts and my mind to gospel, the gospel, you know, and linking things from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the Book of Mormon, for the Doctrine and Covenants. It's, it just, I can see, I, I can feel now like never before why the Book of Mormon is the keystone to our religion. Why it's it's you know the the imagery of the key keystone is that that big stone at the top of the arch of the doorway, right? And um, that's not to say that there aren't supporting pillars and there are other things, but the keystone, the main the main component, the the, the fruit of the restoration, is the Book of Mormon, you know, and the, how important it is, and and how how these people, these prophets and these saints and these Nephites and these Lamanites, how they're just like us. You know, they, they're going through the same trials they, they, and, and how all of that is just the Lord knew that we would, we could learn so much from them and through them, he could talk to us. And then it's dependent on our, the the heed and our desire to know, you know, for ourselves, because we're kind of sitting, we're we're kind of sitting. Our dispensation is sitting right about here, this part mm-hmm. of the Book of Mormon. We're right about here in comparison, waiting for His coming. And in that coming, and in this, and in this phase, we have a lot of good history of people before us and prophets who have given us a lot of good commandments just like the Nephites and Lamanites had and then we are sitting in an era where there are secret combinations there Hmm. are bad things that happen there are challenges to our faith there are things we hope for and look forward to that people will ridicule and make fun of there are temptations to as we prosper feel we're better than them or that, you know, they're better than us. Or, you know, all of these feelings and, and you know, it, we're, we're right here. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of parallels to be drawn, right? Between the, the moment in time that the Nephites and Lamanites are finding themselves in this portion and our own times. Like you said, we're kind of in this mode where... There's a lot of calamity, there's a lot of uh, distraction, and there's also a lot of, okay, so now we're waiting and enduring, you know? Uh, What are we going to be doing while we're waiting and enduring? Are we just going to tread water, or are we going to be those that are trying to be valiant and trying to uh, 
be counted as one of his in the last day, right? Um, I want to move into chapter 11, which, man, this chapter is, is just so good. <laughs> um, there's so much in here, and we could probably dedicate an, an entire episode just to this, but um, I think it's important to note that at the very beginning, uh, as things have calmed down and people are kind of coming together, they're coming together at the temple. And they're discussing things that have, that have been going on. They're bearing testimony to each other of things that they have seen and 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 witnessed. And while they're doing this, um, there's a voice that comes. And I love that it says, uh, it was not a harsh voice. This is in verse 3. Not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear it to the center insomuch that there was no part of their frame that did not cause to quake, yet it did pierce them to the very soul, and did cause their hearts to burn. When it came to pass, they heard the voice, and they understood it not. Even though they didn't understand what it said, they felt it. And it just harkens back to how many times in the scriptures, I mean, you think about Elijah, you know, it wasn't in the earthquake, it wasn't in the wind, it wasn't in the... It was in the still small voice. How many times does the Lord give us that exact example? I'm not going to come and yell at you. I'm not going to come and be just thunderous noise all the time. There are times when his voice comes as thunder and, and is like, whoa, 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 unto this people, right? But at the most important times, it's not forceful. It's very much speaking to your soul. And that doesn't diminish its power. It kind of reminds me of meekness, right? Yeah. Meekness being something that's very powerful, but not overwhelming. It's not something that's going to, to force you to listen. And at the same time, when you do, um, there's a lot that's being said there. And it happened a couple of times. They heard the voice a third time, and, it did op and they did open their ears to hear it. And their eyes were toward the sound thereof, and they did look steadfastly toward heaven from whence the sound came. So that time it says they did open their ears to hear it. And I think that's that's the moment when you're saying we're more than just hearing with our physical ears. We're also trying to understand spiritually what is being said. And I think, yeah. Well, I think about how our agency is always needed especially for these great experiences. It may be that the Lord does 99% and we just have to throw that 1% in, you know? Well, not percent, you know, but you know what I mean. Like, it wasn't until, like, their full attention, like, they opened, you know, their ears and they turned towards the sound. And it's, it wasn't, it was, they, they, all their attention and desire was to hear and understand what this is. And it's the third time, you know? Yeah. And notice that just being at the temple wasn't enough. You know, it wasn't just, I'm here at the temple, so now I'm going to get everything I need to know. They, they were at the temple, and they still didn't quite hear it. And it wasn't until, like you said, they, they gave everything to it. They committed all of themselves 
to listening and focusing and, and really trying to hear what was being said. There have been times when I when I've gone to the temple to do a session and I come out and I feel like no different. I'll admit there are times when I've gone to the temple, I've spent however long, two hours or whatever, and I come out and I'm like, I didn't really get much out of that. And it's because my ears weren't open and I wasn't with my eyes steadfast to heaven, right? I didn't go that last 1%. And there are other times when I go and I come out and I'm like, holy cow, I don't know how many times I've done that. And yet I learn something new every single time. Well, it's, that's like almost true of everything asked of us. (laughs) Prayer. You know, I've been in some prayers and then I think, what did I just say here? <laughs> like you you start, you, and you're trying not to be repetitive, but we all have it. Or the times when you bless the food twice in one prayer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please bless the food and also, and also bless the food. And people are like, what? And then you realize I just did that. Yeah, because you weren't well, really focusing. Or you pray about a bunch of stuff and you don't even bless the food. That was the whole point of the prayer, right? <laughs> so it goes both directions, right? Yeah. I think it's important to know that this voice is Heavenly Father. Yeah. Heavenly Father introducing his son. You know, and in verse 7, it's very simple. It says, Behold my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. There can be no greater introduction (laughs) from Heavenly Father. And he's also, it's so kind. You know, it's his beloved son in whom he is pleased. He's done everything he's been asked. He's the perfect example. You know? And they cast their eyes up towards heaven and behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven. And he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them. And the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him, and they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wits not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. You know, and... And he stretched forth his hand and spake unto the people, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets have testified should come unto the world. You say stuff, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's... To, to clarify any confusion, this is who I am. And then he starts to repeat some of the things he said previously. I am the light and the life of the world. And then he says, I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me. I have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. He's basically telling them, everything I've been sent to do, I've done. Everything the prophets testified about, what happened, has happened. And here I am with you. And I think that there were probably, I don't know, I think about the the church made the video, the Testaments, and, 
you know, there's some cheesy parts to that film, but uh, I think about the the experience of the the main. It's a fictional character, Helam, in that film. That he has spent his whole life trying to be righteous, teach his family the right things, preach to the people, and in that moment, it's like everything I've been striving for is vindicated. Everything I've sacrificed is vindicated. Everything I've lost is vindicated. And I'm sure, even though that was a fictional character in that film, there were people who were like that, who had endured ridicule, who had endured um, losing friends and family over not wanting to give in to Gadiant and robbers and such. And um, for them to hear that, for them to hear that testimony and for us also to read that and if we put ourselves in their shoes and to understand that those words are not just for those people those words are also for us it's extremely powerful so i really like in verse 12 when when they realize who he is and it says and jesus had spoken these words when he had spoken these words the whole multitude fell to the earth, and they remembered that it had been prophesied among them that Christ should show himself unto them after his ascension unto heaven. So, it's, I don't know, it, for me, what I, what I really like is when he comes here, he lets them know, I am the one you've been hearing about from all these prophets. I came and I fulfilled the atonement. But you've, you know, the most important thing. And then once he sees them, that they are in awe, and he knows why, because they're starting to put all these dots together and realize, and he's here because we've been told, and in a few chapters back, we hear, well, actually through the whole book, we see that, Sometimes there's doubt, there's questions that they that they are some generations are only hearing this is going to happen at a future date, your children or your great grandchildren, you know, and even even once there's an argument written where, well, if this is so important, then why does he go to Jerusalem? Why not here? Why does he show himself to them? And then they're told, well, he will after he's done that part. He will come to us. And and I just think how kind and loving and perceptive the Savior is. Because he knows at this point, they are in awe at what they're feeling. And he in verse 14, he says unto them, Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and I have been slain for the sins of the world. And, you know, to them, they now get to feel and see and feel the marks in his hand because they know he's been crucified, but he's been crucified clear across the world. Yeah. You know? And just how thoughtful he is to 
they know <laughs> they know it's him. But just so you know, and it's not just so you all know, it's so you individually know, you come here and you feel this and touch here and feel the wound in my side, feel the prints in my hands. And it was individually. And um, yeah, verse in verse 16, 16, when they had all gone forth and witnessed for themselves, they did cry out with one accord saying, Hosanna. Blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. The, the emphasis on individuality of testimony and of gospel and of salvation is so crucial here. Because he could have said, I want Nephi, who was a prophet and who's still here, which he does bring him up in a little bit. But I want him to come and touch this and then tell you all. No, everyone, everyone, take the time. Take the, well, that, that time that he could have been spending teaching something else. It was like, no, this is crucial that everyone bear witness of this. Yeah, in halfway through 15, going forth one by one until they had all gone forth. Yeah. I. It's hard to say how many people are here. I don't know. I've heard about 2,000. Maybe it tells us later on and I've forgotten. But that wasn't a 15-minute event, <laughs> you know? It took a while. And but it, then, shows, it shows that everyone matters. Everyone matters. Um, he didn't say heads of household. He didn't say the people who have paid the most faithful tithing or the people who have given the most fast offerings. or No. Or the people who have been members the longest. You know, it was like everyone, everyone matters. That's something that I think this last year especially has been testified to me particularly strong. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> sorry, now I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm not sure why, because it's not that I dis, uh, not that I don't think that some people are important. Um, but I think that for some reason, Heavenly Father has been testifying to me a lot this year that every person is of equal value and worth to him. And there's been countless ways that that's been testified to me. Maybe it's because as a as a society, we have the tendency to lump people together into groups and to write groups off as being a certain way. And I'm being instructed not to do that. Um, but you see stuff like this, and it just really, really reiterates the value of the individual spirit and the individual experience of each person here on earth as children of God. We all matter, and maybe someone is bigoted, and maybe someone is narrow-minded or short-sighted or whatever, but it doesn't mean that they should just be written off or that they don't matter. Everyone matters equally, and th that's so hard for the natural man to really grasp sometimes, but it's very well illustrated. His first appearance to these people, he doesn't say, you know, we only have time for some of you. No, it's every single person. It's it's really interesting that 
that uh, we often forget how dependent we are on Christ and our eternal family and how how much mercy is shown to us. And we often do not reciprocate that to our neighbors and to our friends and to even strangers. And I, I view like parenting, like there are certain things you, that your child is kind of like you, you know, sometimes mostly physically. Uh, some, some attributes they pick up uh, habits from just observing you, from your culture, your DNA, your habits. And then there's other things that it's just theirs. And, and you look at them because they're yours. You look at them and you see those differences as strengths. And you're able to see, well, you know, he, he's, this one's a little rambunctious. But if we can channel that, we can get him in a sport. We can do this. We can do that. And this one, he's, he's more introverted and he just likes reading. And, but if we can just nudge him a little bit to be more extroverted. You know, and, and, and you kind of tend to just like customize this love for them and this charity where you see hope in all of their attributes. You see how that one can lead to good. But then with each other, when we're not, <laughs> we view almost everything different than us as a threat. And that's different. And, and we don't see that within them is those same attributes that they were a child. And unfortunately, sometimes uh, either bad experiencing or parenting or habits or cultures or things pass on things that aren't good. But we all have those things, you know. Um, anyway, Nephi, you know, Christ, uh, and it came to pass in verse 18 that he spake unto Nephi, and he commanded him that he should come forth. I like Nephi how he's kind of like, hold on, I like how he's kind of like, for Nephi was among the multitude. It's like, oh, by the way, the actual <laughs> prophet was still there. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Nephi went forth and bowed himself unto the Lord and kissed his feet. And the Lord commanded him that he should arise, and he arose. And then he he kind of starts to give us the or, some ordinances here and some commandments. And he tells Nephi, I give you power, and that power is the priesthood. Yeah. Priesthood keys. That you shall baptize these people when I am ascended into heaven. And it's funny because here's another part where I think the Lord is being very perceptive of the needs of the people. We're going to read later on that he tarries with them. He blesses their children. He heals their sick. And he looks at them and they, he, they don't want him to leave. You know? But he's giving us right here what we can all have to be close to him and near him. Forever, you know, and he gives them power that they should be baptized. Um, and again, the Lord called others and likewise gave them power and that there should be no disputations. And so he, he kind of, he then organizes or explains or reiterates or clarifies the baptismal prayer, 
what it should be like. And in the ordinance itself, the action, how you should be immersed in the water and come forth out of the water. And then 27, and after this manner, you shall baptize in my name. For behold, verily I say unto you, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one. And I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. And according as I have commanded you, thus shall ye baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you. And there has there have hitherto been, neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine, as they have hitherto been. It's funny because I, I wonder if I was in that crowd and I had some disputations. Where I thought, oh, we should have baptized people this way. Like in my past, right? And then he says that, and you think, he, in the order in which he does things, I think it's interesting to me. Because initially he comes and lets them know, who am I? Why yeah. am I here? And then he comes and says, come check for yourself. And then, and then there's this just a motion from the people, 17, Hosanna, he's here. And, and, the, and, and we know and we love him and we, we worship him. And then he kind of says, if you want to be with me, <laughs> kind of like if you want to, if, if this matters to you, you have to be baptized. You have to make these covenants, you know? And then after that, then comes the instruction. Now, you have to do it this way, and you can't argue about this. You can't continue to have disputations or, or variations. It's very specific after this manner, you know. And then 29, he says, Verily I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil who is the father of contention. And he stirs up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. And and this is not my doctrine to stir up the hearts of men to anger one with another. But this is my doctrine that such things should be done away. This, that that, is, those two scriptures stuck out to me so much because I feel like a lot of what's happening in the, our world today is stirring up anger or frustration or whatever towards a certain group. And it's not always, it's hidden sometimes under good causes yep or protecting innocent people but it's the method that's the problem because he just clarified in in that that's the amazing thing he just gives us a perfect example of him correcting something yeah you know um and he did it in order and he did it when the people were ready to hear it you know, yeah. He did it in a loving and very effective way. You know, here's the right way to baptize. This is the way I want you to do it. Now, there's no more disputes about this. I've established this, and this is the way it will be. You know, and because they, he carries that authority, and because they trust in him, they're like, oh, okay, all right, we'll carry that on then. Well, and I think this, that, the students this whole, were ready to learn. You know, yeah. Yeah, they were in the right place. If he would have done it at a different, point, I don't think that's why he's who he is. He has perfect timing, you know. But especially twenty nine and thirty, like I just, 
it felt like it was a rebuke to many many of our interactions um, in society today. He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. This is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another, but this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. You know, it reminded me of Captain Moroni. Yes. Captain Moroni did contentious things. War, fighting, battle. But he was didn't have the spirit of contention. He did not delight in bloodshed. He wasn't out there picking a fight. He was doing things by the defensiveness, you know, defending his people for the right reasons. And I think sometimes people think, if I don't contend or argue with this person, or post or retweet this, then it means <laughs> that I'm enabling it, that I'm saying it's okay. And the brethren have asked me to stand up for what's right, you know, but we need to do it Captain Moroni's way, not, not getting into robber way. You know what I mean? Yep. In verse 33, he goes on, to, he's talking about his doctrine. And he basically, in 33 and 34, very simple. And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. It's not enough just to believe, and it's not enough just to be baptized either. Like, you have to do both, and you have to follow him and be baptized to be saved. And then, of course, in 35, he says, at the, at the very end, he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And thus will the Father bear record of me, and the Holy Ghost will bear record unto him of the Father and me. For the Father and I and the Holy Ghost are one. The, the Holy Ghost, the gift of the Holy Ghost as a constant companion is, is part of our salvation. Um, it's a gift given to us in order to help us achieve exaltation someday. And I think that that is often looked at kind of as just a, another portion of the Godhead. And it's not really looked at as this is a vital part of the ingredients needed for you to achieve exaltation, right? It's, it is an ordinance to receive the Holy Ghost. Well, he, this, this section does a really good job at explaining that there is a Godhead and that also Christ is here to show us what the Father is like, to testify of him, and that we need to follow Christ's example, and that our Heavenly Father has commanded us that, you know, at the end of verse 32, and I bear record that the Father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. And I think sometimes we do the word repent a disservice because we've used it we've abused that word in a way we make it feel like like repentance is you need to suffer you need to it's like something but if we read it uh, a little bit different if we were say that the father of all men everywhere commandeth us to improve and change and believe in me to seek improvement that when we gain new knowledge that's better than old knowledge, we throw that old knowledge away and we 
accept the new one and keep moving. Like it's that whole thing that you don't put new wine in old vessels, you know? And sometimes we try to gain more knowledge without changing behavior and it doesn't impact us, you know? We have to be willing to put the new wine in new vessels, you know? Well, he gives us two very clear examples of how to do that in the la in the last few chapters of this verse, or in the last few verses of this chapter. Um, you must repent and become as a little child. So he's said that countless times throughout the uh, throughout the scriptures, becoming as a little child, and basically it means to be humble, to be innocent, to be uh, willing to learn, and to be willing to follow. And then he talks about in verse 39, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my doctrine, that whoso buildeth upon this, buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. Verse 40, and this first part is so awesome. And whoso shall declare more or less than this, and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil, and is not built upon my rock. But he that... But he buildeth upon a sandy foundation, and the gates of hell shall stand open to receive such when the floods come and winds beat upon them. Very interesting to me that he would say, there's going to be people who come and try to dumb this down and try to make it less than what I've said. There's also going to be people that come that try to make this more than what I've said. They're going to try to enhance things or bring things out that have nothing to do with any of this. That's not my doctrine. That's a sandy foundation, right? There's going to be people who try to shoot beyond the mark, right? But, you know, there will be people that come and that try to uh, have basically new information or new insight or new interpretations of things. And he's basically saying, you know, it's not that complicated. I've said it. This is as simple as it is. You know the doctrine, you know the gospel, follow that, and that's all you need. And if they try to simplify it, say, oh, well, we don't need to do this. Or if you do this most of the time, you're okay. Or if they come and say, well, that's only level one. If you want to become a level six member of the church, you should r read this and do this and whatever. But that's also just as, just as wrong, you know? Um, the gospel is pure. The, the, the doctrine is clear. And he basically well, says firm foundation versus sandy foundation. It really hits me that our intentions matter a lot. Yeah. And when, and when the, sometimes we can do the correct action. And that's better than nothing. But doing the correct actions with the correct intention is the best recipe just and sometimes we have the right intention but we don't have the strength to do the correct action and then we have to take baby steps so we have to seek help you know and we do have that help we have our bishops we have our families and we have the lord and and it's it's kind of like um i i think about in uh in Moroni chapter 7. So in chapter 7, in verse 3, this is Moroni, and he says, I would speak unto you 
that are of the church, that are the peaceable followers of Christ, and that have obtained a sufficient hope by which you can enter into the rest of the Lord for the time henceforth until you should, you know. So he's saying, I'm going to speak to you, the members. You that want to hope, that want to follow the path, that are trying to do what is right. And then he says, verse 5, For I remember the word of God, which saith, By their works ye shall know them. For if their works be good, then they are good also. And behold, God has said, A man being evil cannot do that which is good. For if he offereth a gift or a prayer unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profit him nothing. For behold, it is not counted unto him for righteousness. For behold, if a man being evil giveth a gift, and he does it grudgingly, behold, it counteth unto him the same as if he had retained the gift, wherefore he is counted evil before the Lord. And likewise also is it counted, unto, counted evil unto man, if he shall pray, and not with real intent of heart. Yea, and it profit him nothing. For God receiveth none such. And so this message is to verse 3. I'd speak to those who are of the church, who are in the path, who know what's right and wrong. This message is not for Alma chapter 32. Experiment on my words, you know. Just give it a try. Just kind of fake it till you make it. Now that you know and you've made covenants, you better darn right do them with real intent or else those covenants don't, they're not active. They don't, they don't, they don't count, you know? And I think we see the inverse of that, meaning there are people who are good and don't have the opportunity to make covenants and Christ takes care of that. And right. he'll mention that later on. He says those he will take care of. And then he goes into little children that die without knowledge and all of these things clarifying the doctrine. And, and I think it, at some point we have to understand that there are different expectations based on your knowledge and the covenants you have made. Once you make certain covenants, you've made certain promises to retain in remembrance the Savior, to, uh, you know, keep the commandments, take his name upon you, you know, repent every week, take the sacrament, prepare yourself, do it thoughtfully. Do it with purpose. When we, that that's when we need to be careful of the fake it till you make it scenario, <laughs> you know. And I'm and I'm not saying, you know, you have to be, it do all these things in wisdom. It's not meat that you should run faster and you have strength, right? It's not meat that you should put more or less than this, meaning put more or less. It's you have to seek the Holy Ghost and I always. Because that will give you the balance. It's like the balancing agent. It's the one that tells you you're okay. You need to speed up. You need to slow down. You know, this is where you should be, right? Stay within this parameter. It's interesting that they basically stop this lesson at chapter 11 and not go further because he still stays with them, like you said, for several chapters. And I think it's um, so that we can kind of separate the very beginning from the rest of the teachings 
and break it down a little bit, but what, a, what an incredible opportunity for these people to be taught directly by the Savior. And um, I think it's really awesome that we get that in, not only in the scriptures, but then we get that every six months, not directly from the Savior, but from his prophet and his apostles. Um, it's coming up pretty soon, actually. Well, I, the way I thought the same thing as you, like, it's interesting that this is where it stops. I would have thought it would all be combined. But the thought that I had was this beginning 11 is an introduction. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. And now there are some invitations to make some covenants and to repent and make some changes. And then I feel like the next verses are going to, Christ is going to show us how to be disciples now. Yeah. Now that you've agreed you want to be disciples, this is how you should do it. And it's, it's very beautiful and it follows very much what he tells the people in the New Testament. You know, the Beatitudes and, and, and other very similar scriptures and messages because the principles are the same. And that's the wonderful thing. The principles and the expectations he gives his saints over there are the same he gives his saints over here. There are uh, a few differences when it comes to, you know, for the Savior, he had to spend 30 some odd years over there to show them and to really teach them that the law of Moses have been fulfilled. And ultimately, they still didn't accept that. Uh, except, you know, the saints, but the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were just you know, not having it. Yeah. Here, he was able to let them know that that's fulfilled and then move on very quickly into, okay, let's get down to some some you know, lesson two, how to be a disciple, you know, like now that you have covenant to, to do these things, like, what do you do now type of thing? You know, that's kind of exciting. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places that the spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.